Well, since I have gone old school on you this morning and have gone back to a sermon from 2012, I don't have a scripture reading uh, to lead into this passage. I apologize for that. That was not my practice at the time, uh, uh, those seven or so years ago. And so we're just going to go right into our sermon passage, which is, which is Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 29. For what it's worth, the sermon title is, My Time is at Hand. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 29 is our sermon passage this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. And in God's perfect plan, this is the Word that He ordained for you to hear this morning. Matthew 26, 17 to 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city of a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This ends the reading of God's perfect, holy, inerrant word, most precious to those of us who believe. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful for the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that He established for us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We're thankful, Lord, that it doesn't merely remind us of what He did in His sacrifice of Himself on the cross, though it most certainly does that. It does more. Because Christ Jesus said that when we partook of, when we partake of that meal, we are partaking of Him. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can feed upon Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is food for our souls. We pray that we would have an even higher esteem of the Lord's Supper, a higher love for it, a higher respect for it. We pray for our covenant youth and for those who aren't able to partake of the Lord's Supper that you would create in them that desire, a good and holy and righteous desire to be communing members in this church so that they can partake. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word about this supper 
even as we prepare to partake of that supper later in this service. Guide us by your spirit, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, where we are in the passage this morning, in Matthew chapter 26, and perhaps you've recently read through the gospel. I'm sure that most of you have read through it at some point in your lives. But where we are in the passage this morning, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem the previous Sunday, the first day of the week. But on about Tuesday of that week, they decided to leave uh, the city of Jerusalem and go to Bethany, where uh, his close friends were, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so they were there during the Passover week, and we have spent a little time in passages that deal with the Passover, so you're probably aware, and even if you didn't get it from here, you've probably heard it elsewhere, that that the size of the city of Jerusalem during Passover week would swell, it would double and triple in size in terms of population. And so it's understandable that Jesus and his disciples would desire to get away from the throngs, especially as we know from other Gospels, that the authorities were looking for Jesus. They wanted to get him, they wanted to arrest him. In our passage, it's now Thursday. It's the first day of the Feast of an Unleavened Bread, when Jews would begin to remove all of the leaven from their homes. And and that year, the feast would have been on Friday. The, The Passover feast, that is, would have been on Friday. But Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover on for what on what for us would be a day early. But for them was the day of Passover, since sundown marks the beginning of the day, the next day. They, they celebrated Passover what would have been Thursday night. But for them would have served as the first part of Friday, which was the day when Passover itself would be celebrated. Now this should have been a clear sign to the disciples that Jesus was going to be taken away from them. And so he wanted to celebrate this meal. He also clearly wanted to institute the Lord's Supper during this meal. He wanted to do this before he was taken away from them. He wanted to celebrate Passover with his disciples one last time before the very next day he was crucified. And it's at this Passover meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which inseparably links these two meals together. The Passover, you know, was one of the sacraments of the Old Testament, along with the sacrament of circumcision. And in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper takes over the sacramental position of the Passover. And so up to this point, up to the point of institution for God's people, for the church, the Passover feast marked the most significant event in the history of God's people, the rescue of the Jews from Egypt. However, the Lord's Supper marks the most significant event ever in the history of God's people. The sacrifice not of a lamb during the Passover week, but the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, on the cross for the sins of His people. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to consider this. As with the Passover, but even more clearly with the Lord's Supper, it is the gospel proclaimed invisible words. As with the Passover, but even more clearly with the Lord's Supper, it is the gospel proclaimed in visible words. Now, I heard a couple of weeks ago when I did a four-point sermon that some of you gasped. I didn't actually hear it, but I heard it reported to me. Well, today we've just got a two-point sermon. I don't know if that makes you surprised or not. Apparently I did things differently years ago than I do now. Uh, but the first point of the sermon is the Passover feast, and the second point of the sermon is the Passover lamb. Very simple. The Passover feast, 
the Passover lamb. The, the, the passage itself divides itself neatly into two different sections anyway. So let's first look at the Passover feast. Verse 17 says that it was the first day of unleavened bread. This was a seven-day feast that coincided with the Passover. And this feast itself, the, 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 uh, the unleavened bread, it was instituted at the same time as the original Passover back in Egypt after Moses had, had come and he'd, he'd brought the, the nine plagues upon uh, the Egyptians and the tenth plague was, was that of the, of the Passover when the angel of the Lord would pass over the houses of those who had the blood of the Passover lamb painted onto their doorframe. God commanded in Exodus 12 that the people of Israel had to remove all of the leaven in their houses. Why is this? Well, leaven was representative in this uh, this seven-day feast. The penalty for not doing so, according to Exodus 12, verse 15, was to be cut off from Israel. And the Israelites would go to great pains to make sure that there was no leaven left in, in, anywhere in their house. Now, leaven, as you know, it's a substance. It can be something like yeast. It could be something like baking powder. It's used in bread to make it rise during baking. Leaven itself wasn't a bad thing, but it represented a bad thing. In the Old Testament, it represented sin. And, the, and, and in the context of Exodus chapter 12, it specifically represented the idolatry of the Egyptians, which God wanted the Israelites to leave behind once they departed from the land of Egypt. It represented the, the, the sweeping away and the destruction of these idols, which undoubtedly, inevitably, God's people would have picked up from the, the, the people who lived in the land where they uh, were enslaved. And so it is on this first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that Jesus and his, his disciples observe the Passover feast. The disciples come to Jesus to ask him where he would have, uh, have them get things ready for the Passover. And Jesus responds in verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, it was expected that the Passover meal would be eaten within greater Jerusalem. So, sort of, you know, the idea of uh, you, have, uh, you have Dallas, you have Fort Worth, you have the city limits there. We sometimes speak of the Metroplex. And so the disciples were to go into the city to locate the place for the meal within the greater bounds of the city of Jerusalem. However, because of the vast crowds of people who came into Jerusalem for the feast, the official city limits during Passover were expanded in order to keep people, to enable them to keep that, that rule to, to, to observe Passover within greater Jerusalem. And he instructs his disciples in verse 18 to tell the man whose house, at whose house they will celebrate the Passover, my time is at hand. He's these disciples are to signal to this man, who apparently was, was one of his many disciples, not among the twelve, but one of the many, a follower of Jesus, one who recognized Jesus as the teacher. The time is now. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus talks about this in other places in the Scripture. It's very clear. We, we know from the context of Matthew what he means. His life is about to end. The date of his sacrificing of himself on the cross is here. And in reality, on that Thursday evening, which was technically Friday for them, the day had come. It was literally the day of his sacrifice. And so he says, my time is at hand. This, in some ways, seems to be a, a, a key phrase, uh, perhaps 
uh, some sort of a password type thing, but what it means for this resident of Jerusalem is, I need your room. I need to celebrate this feast with my disciples. And verse 19 says that the disciples did just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover for the disciples. When the sun set on what we would call Thursday, as we've already said, a new day began, the day of Passover. And Jesus and the twelve disciples were at the house of the certain man, mentioned in verse 18, and Jesus was reclining at table. This is a a different way of thinking about it uh, than we think today. In that culture, they didn't sit in chairs the way that we do for meals. Many Jews at that time had adopted the Greek and the Roman custom of reclining on couches for meals. And they would recline with their feet away from the table. As you can imagine, their their feet uh, weren't real clean. Their feet weren't real nice. You wanted to have the the, the dirty, smelly feet as far away from the table, uh, what you would be partaking of, as possible. And because of the way that they would recline at table, it would require a great amount of space. But this meal took place, according to Mark's and Luke's accounts, in a large upper room. And so space here wasn't an issue. In this setting, a large table would be surrounded by three couches. Now, if you're imagining uh, da Vinci's uh, painting of The Last Supper, I'm sorry, he got it wrong. It's a great picture, but it's, it's, it's more of an impression uh, than what actually took place. And these couches, uh, they were large, as many as 18 people could sit on these three couches around the table. And they weren't like our couches. They didn't have backs to them. They didn't have arms to them. And as they dined in this reclined position, they would partake. They were some, in some cases close to one another. The Apostle John is said in, in his gospel to, to lean back against the, the chest of Jesus to put his head against him. And so there there was an intimacy to this meal. Verse 21 says that as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples were sorrowful and they began to ask one by one, is it I, Lord? And Jesus responded, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now Jesus makes it clear that what he is doing, this betrayer, it is the fulfillment of what has been written down in Scripture. But even so, the one who betrays him, he does it willingly and is therefore responsible for his actions. And in verse 25, the the betrayer is revealed. Jesus, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now Jesus, he's leading the Passover Seder. He would have been in the position reserved for the host. And John 13 verse 23 says that the disciple whom Jesus loved reclined on one side of Jesus. It even says in that passage, as we've already mentioned, that John laid his head back against the chest of Jesus. Now consider this. This is... This is a a large room with a large table, three large couches, enough for as many as 18 people. But in this case, there were the 12 disciples plus Jesus. And the passage says that Judas dipped his hand, or that the one who dips his hand in the bowl with Jesus was his betrayer. John's on one side of him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Judas must be on the other side of Jesus. And in that culture, the person who was on the other side of Jesus would have been to Jesus' back. 
if his chest is in such a way that, that John could lay his head against his chest, Jesus' back is to Judas. Judas is in the seat of honor at this table. The seat where the most trusted person would be sitting. Because that's the place at which Jesus was the most defenseless. Judas had the place of honor. The most trusted position at this table. And he is the one who proved to be Christ's betrayer. Just moments after this meal was completed. Let's look now at the second point, the Passover lamb. In this context of Jesus saying that he would be betrayed and his time being at hand, Jesus institutes the first sacrament of the New Testament church, the Lord's Supper. He'll institute the second sacrament, baptism, after his resurrection prior to his ascension into heaven. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now it is clear that Jesus intends for the Old Testament sacrament of the Passover to be replaced by the New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And what's more, and here's something that we can't miss here, since their observance of the Passover took place a day early, on what we would have called Thursday night, but at the beginning of the first day, uh, the beginning of the day on which Passover would be celebrated, since it took place a day early, then they would not have had a Passover lamb as part of their Passover feast. The slaughter of the lambs was not set to take place until 3 p.m. the following day. And there's actually an indication, at least in John's gospel, that Christ's crucifixion on the cross took place at around the same time as the slaughtering of the lamb for the Passover feast. And so they celebrated Passover. This is not necessarily anything unusual because those who were in the, in the diaspora, those who had been scattered throughout the Mediterranean, if they couldn't make it to Jerusalem, they were, they were obliged to, but not everyone could make it to Jerusalem for Passover. And if they did so, they were to celebrate it as much as they could, but they had no Passover lamb. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're celebrating it the way that they would have celebrated it had they remained in Galilee, had they remained outside of the bounds of Jerusalem. But with Jesus' words, take, eat, this is my body, with regard to the bread, he indicates that he is taking the place of the Passover lamb. In verses 27 to 28, Jesus took the cup of wine, the third cup of wine in the Passover meal, what is known as the cup of redemption. And he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now taken together with verse 26, in the absence of a lamb, these verses show that Jesus intends for his disciples to see him as the Passover lamb. They are to understand that he is taking the place of, of this lamb in this meal. The bread and the wine, they represent the body and the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb who will be sacrificed on Friday when all of the other Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And so with the Lord's Supper, just as with the sacraments of circumcision and baptism, the bloody sacrament of the Old Testament has been exchanged with the bloodless sacrament of the New the only blood that need be shed for his disciples is the perfect 
Passover lamb, which will happen later on, on the same day that Jesus instituted this meal. Now, a few words need to be said about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is true that Jesus says, this is my body. The verb is, is in there in the Greek. This is my blood. The ises are there. But that does not mean that we are compelled to interpret this passage to mean that the bread and the wine transform literally into Christ's body and blood. You know what I'm getting at here. There's no transubstantiation that Jesus is, is talking about here. Jesus says elsewhere, I am the door. The same verb in a different form. But there is no teaching in any church of which I am aware in which it says that Jesus would literally transform into the door or the gate of a sheep pen. We are not required in every instance of Scripture to take something that could be taken as metaphorical, symbolic. We're not required to take that literally. But, and we have to be careful about this, just because we don't take these verses literally, it doesn't mean that we are not to take these verses seriously. A, a non-literal interpretation of this passage doesn't mean that we take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper any less seriously than those who do believe that it transforms somehow, mysteriously, magically, into the very body and blood of Christ. There is no literal bodily presence of Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus continues to inhabit his physical human body as he sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Isn't that where you want him to be? Continually making intercession for you? He's there in human flesh at our Father's right hand, at his Father's right hand. And so there is no literal bodily presence of Jesus, but Jesus is truly and spiritually present in the supper. Just because he's not physically present doesn't mean that his presence is any less real. This sacramental meal, it isn't intended to nourish our bodies. If it were, then it's most likely that Jesus would have had it after the lambs had been sacrificed, after there had been some real meat to dig into, but he gives them a piece of bread. Perhaps a morsel. He gives them a cup of wine. It's never intended to, to physically feed them. It's intended to spiritually feed them. And so the spirit, spiritual presence of Christ is all that we need in the supper. As Augustine and, and later Calvin said, the sacraments are visible words. They convey the good news of salvation to us by means other than the spoken or the read word. In the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, number 170, as the body and the blood of Christ are not corporally or carnally present, meaning they're not physically present, he's not physically present in, with, or under the bread of, uh, and wine and the Lord's Supper, and yet are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements are to their outward senses. It is unnecessary, it's superfluous, for Christ to be physically present. He's spiritually present. The meal is not intended to strengthen our bodies. It's intended to strengthen our souls. And that is why we don't need to engage in superstition. 
Christ is spiritually present in this meal, and that is enough, and that is serious, and that is important, and that is real. And these elements of bread and wine, they represent his spiritual presence to us. They do not become his spiritual presence for us. Just as Jesus' death does not atone for the sins of every single person who has ever lived, we affirm the limited atonement of Christ. Jesus says in verse 28, For this is my body, I'm sorry, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, not for all, for many. And so the Lord's Supper is not for every single person. Just because you're here today, that doesn't necessarily mean that you ought to partake. If you're not a communing member of this church, if you're, if, you're, if you're not a member of Christ's church in which you have professed your faith, we don't want you to partake of this meal. Not because we're trying to be mean or exclusionary. Because you have to, you have to publicly profess your faith and be a member of Christ's visible church before you partake of this meal. In verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples that he will, will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when they drink it new, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what he says. Jesus would drink of a fruit of the vine during his crucifixion. The Roman centurion places a sponge that's been dipped in soured wine, vinegar, mixed with a little bit of water. And that's what he gives Jesus to drink. On the cross when he was dying, he had a fruit of the vine, but not this fruit, not wine. Jesus promises his disciples that he will once again celebrate a great feast with them, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but they will have to wait until the kingdom of God fully comes when Jesus returns in power and glory on the last day. And so this supper is intended to point us to that day to make us long for that day when Jesus will be with us. It's it's intended to remind us of this great feast that we and all who believe in Jesus Christ will enjoy when he returns. And so we do. We long for that day when we will see the Lord face to face, when we will sit down with him and have a great feast with him. The disciples had a foretaste of that banquet when they sat down with him for this Last supper, but this first supper. But we have a foretaste of it as well. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in just a few moments, we'll, we'll, we'll have a taste of that marriage supper. This meal will visually tell us the story of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. It will tell us about his death as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But as well as telling us the gospel, the Lord's Supper allows us to commune with Jesus similarly to how we will commune with him in heaven forever. In this meal, and as you partake of it, you need to remember that Jesus is truly, really present with you when you partake of this meal. It is a means of grace. It's a way that Christ communicates the benefits of redemption to you as you partake. And when we eat this meal in faith, when we partake of the gospel that we can see and smell and touch and taste, 
Jesus himself nourishes our souls. He cares for you. He cares for me. This is the way in which Jesus continues, one of the ways in which he continues to shepherd the souls of his most precious flock. Brothers and sisters, it's good news that he cares enough for you to do this for you. And so I encourage you, when you partake, those of you who are able, that you partake in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you. We thank you that this meal that Christ ordained, that he instituted, that it was instituted for our well-being, for our good, for our growth in grace, our growth in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that each of us here who is able to partake would do so in faith, would do so cognizant of the fact that we aren't worthy by ourselves to partake of such a precious and important and serious meal. We pray that as we partake, we would recognize we are partaking of the body and the blood of Christ, not physically, not carnally, but we are doing so spiritually. So we give thanks to you, O Lord, that you have established this supper for our souls this feast for our faith. We pray that you would bless us now as we prepare ourselves to partake of this meal. We pray this in Jesus' name.